Here we go. It's time to shift our schools. Welcome to Shifting Our Schools podcast. Shifting Our Schools is created and produced by Jeff Udick and David Carpenter. Shifting Our Schools podcast is released under a Creative Commons 3.0 share like license. In other words, if you like what you hear, go ahead and use it. All right. Oh, I put the wrong link into Twitter. That's not going to be good. All right. So let's go ahead and get started on the evening. And we've got two guests joining us to do today, all the way from the United States. And we appreciate Jeff and John getting up early to join us today. Welcome, guys, to Shifting Our Schools podcast. Thank you, Jeff. As we get started here, I'm going to have you guys kind of introduce yourselves. I've already put your... I've already put your links to your blogs in the uh, chat room for those that are listening live. Uh, and so, Jeff, let's start with you. Your blog is at techneat.edublogs.org. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and kind of tell us what you do. Thanks, Jeff and, and David, uh, for Great. hosting us here. Um, uh, I work at Virginia Commonwealth University at the Center for Teaching Excellence. And uh, here, I'm the associate director of the center, and in that role, what I do is work with faculty to help them explore ways to uh, use technology in meaningful ways to support teaching and learning. Good. All right, and John's joining us today, and John, let me get this right, edinsanity.com. I like that. That would be me. (laughs) That's a great blog name. Go ahead, and why don't you introduce yourself and tell us kind of what you do. Sure. Uh, John Becker. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Educational Leadership at Virginia Commonwealth University. Just starting my, well, actually finishing the first year and a half at Virginia Commonwealth. Uh, Prior to here, I was at Hofstra University, which is on Long Island in New York, also as a professor of educational leadership. So when you say professor of educational leadership, are most of the people you're training then, are they looking, are they getting administrative degrees, superintendent degrees, that kind of, are, are most of your students headed down that track? All, all of the above. Uh, we have programs for pre-service school leaders, uh, and those are master's level programs. We also have a post-master's program, which is for folks who already have a master's but want to get their certification as a school leader. Uh, and then we have, uh, we have now at Virginia Commonwealth, actually, we have two doctoral programs in our Department of Educational Leadership. We have an EDD program and a PhD program. Excellent. And joining us always from Taiwan and back from the Apple Distinguished Educators, which got moved to Singapore before all this stuff happened <laughs> in Bangkok and turned out to be a good thing. And I couldn't go because I got moved to Singapore, which was an okay thing because I wouldn't have been able to fly out anyway. So it's funny how everything works out for a reason. But uh, good evening, David. And tell us a little bit about uh, what, hap- how, what did you think about uh, the Apple Distinguished Educator and kind of what you did there in Singapore? You said you're pretty tired. They ran your wild, huh? <laughs> we were going from 7 till 10 at night and beyond. One of the, one of the neat things was that you were uh, 
you had a house or a bunkmate in a sense that you shared a hotel room and which led to a lot of late night discussions and, and just wonderful collaboration throughout the the five to six days that we were there. Uh, it, it was just a, a great experience for this program has been going on for a long time by Apple to support educators and what what I enjoyed the most which is hearing the, the neat things that people are doing at their schools and we, we spent a uh, one day, well, a day and a half in teams collaborating to build out um, some discovery challenge-based units. And it was wonderful to see the finished products. And they all go up on the uh, Apple Learning Interchange. That's going to be my blog post of the week of um, everyone ended up presenting and then uh, uploaded those to the server. And they're out there for, for anyone to go to the site. And I'll be putting that site in the the show notes and for tonight i'm i'm so excited to get uh to to these virginia gentlemen here i'm from virginia myself and uh it's it's great to have them um visiting with us and we were going to talk about what prevents administrators from shifting so it's going to be nice to get that higher ed perspective of what is happening in our graduate schools and what are the skills that we hope our administrators are gaining as they uh, finish their programs and return to their K K twelve environments. Good. So, uh, and as we get started here, I do have to plug David because I know he won't plug it for himself, but he has a great article in the December January issue of Learning and Leading with Technology. There's a great article written by him and his wife that uh, is a must read. So, if you do belong to ISTE and you do get the Learning and Leading magazine or Leading and Learning, which one is it? Learning. Leading, learning and leading, learning yes. and leading magazine. Yes, uh, yeah. Have a look at that article because it is a great article, written by David. So let's go ahead and let's start with you, John. And around our IQ, our uh, essential question tonight: What is what are kind of your thoughts, and why are you know what are some of the things that kind of prevent administrators from making this shift to a new educational landscape, if you will? What what are your thoughts on that? Well. My perspective is mostly from uh, the the world of leadership preparation, and certainly from that perspective, what prevents school leaders from shifting is that they're not getting the the preparation that they need. Um, there are oh, there are hundreds of programs, uh, university-based programs that prepare school leaders in the United States. There are, I think at last count, six professors of educational leadership who care, think, write, study, research issues of technology. Uh, So we are uh, a small, uh, trying-to-be-vocal group uh, trying to get our colleagues on board such that uh, when they do the work of preparing school leaders, they make sure that they talk about issues that need to be talked about so that we can move our schools forward. Um, the um, There was also, in addition to what happens at the, at the preparation level, uh, one of my colleagues, who some of you may know, is Scott McLeod, who's probably the, the leader of the six, and Scott is at Iowa State University, and he and a colleague uh, did a, a study recently of the major peer-reviewed journals in school leadership. And they found that 
a very, very small percentage of all of the articles that have been published in the last five to ten years um, even mention the word technology. So uh, the folks who are in the business of preparing school leaders in this country um, are not at all, other than a handful of us, uh, at all concerned with or even raising issues of um, not just technology, but sort of uh, forward-thinking issues about schooling. And so I think that's a a huge problem, at least uh, as I know it, in the United States. And why why do you think that is? I mean, is there there that that much pressure on universities? Is there that much pressure on administrators due to testing things in the United States? Or what... I mean, and, and I think overall, I think this, this affects us internationally because we, a lot of our administrators do come out of stateside programs. And so, we're, you know, I'm just trying to figure out why, why are there only – I mean, I know there are six of you that are fantastic and you guys are making the push. But six out of all of those programs that are, that are training administrators seems just – yeah, exactly. So why I mean what 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 are the other pressures that you see that are maybe taking the time or that aren't allowing universities to focus or make this landscape change? Um I, mostly I think the problem is that uh the the curricula of the program are these days there are lines we have like K or P12 schools have their standards that they have to teach to. We have our standards that we have to teach to. We're our programs are framed by a national organization um, that produces a set of standards that's called the ISLIC standards, sort of what every school leadership program needs to be teaching. Um, and if you look at the ISLIC standards, there's uh, nothing or very little in there about technology. Uh, and from my perspective, there's very little – there's there's mention of words like change and reform, um, but where those get discussed, it's um, mostly uh, it from sort of I don't know the 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 old traditional school reform stuff, and so there's a lot of work around the, Michael Fullen's work, for example, um, who writes really nice stuff, but uh, it doesn't talk about change uh, in the way that I think change needs to happen. So so f- I think from a curriculum perspective, uh, leadership programs feel like, well, there's, there's nowhere in our standards that we need to be addressing that. Um, but it's also um, just a matter of the folks who um, I, like, I, you know, I like to chalk it up to, to age as well, but I'm not sure that's entirely an issue too. There are some mm. newer, younger professors of educational leadership who are focused on on other issues so it it's a curriculum issue it's a personnel issue uh in at the leadership preparation level hmm. jeff what's your you know, I, I would yeah i mean i would i would add to that uh in in agreement with john but i think that we're also at a at a really unprecedented time and that um this is a, a huge shift uh you know, I hesitate to say, but I mean, it is. It's it's a massive paradigm shift here, and uh, you know what we know about education in general, but I think higher education in specific. Um, it, you know, it again, it changed at a glacial pace, and um, you know, I like to th- I like to think of um, higher ed is like this uh, big 
ship, you know, like the USS higher education. And, you know, to slow this thing down, turn it around and move it in another direction takes a long time and a lot of effort. And it's getting pushed and nudged by, I think, some, some smaller um, tugboats, if you will. But it, it takes it, it's taking a very, very long time to, I, I guess, uh, generate programmatic changes like John's talking about in school leadership programs. Um, I want to circle back to that in a second and also talk about perhaps just real briefly some other barriers for uh, perhaps or speed bumps, if you will, for school leaders. John mentioned preparation and training of uh, K-12 school leaders. But, you know, there's other things as, as well that I think you guys could chime in on. I don't know how much time we want to spend on those necessarily, but to talk about what are some possible solutions and what are some good things that are happening. Um, as we look at what principals do in schools, you know, uh, you think about the vast array of things that, that they do from class schedules to discipline issues to administrating, you know, labor contracts, evaluating teachers, on and on and on and on, responding to federal legislation, uh, NCLB kind of stuff. And we wanted to be present in the hallways and work with faculty. And, and then we add this layer of, yeah, we want you to develop a personal learning network as well and be involved in this participatory web thing. Um, it's overwhelming. So time, you know, is a huge, huge issue. Um, and I think along with that comes the preparation thing, as John mentioned. And I think both of those things combined are, are quite significant. And uh, staff buy-in, IT governance at schools, school boards. I mean, these are things that make the change, I think, pretty challenging. Um, so, in terms of what I do here at, at the center, one of the things that we, again, focus on is something called faculty learning communities. And right now, we have a faculty learning community that happens to have uh, four faculty members from the School of Education. And these are folks I've been working with for two years who've committed to exploring the use of technology in their own teaching and learning and are now beginning to integrate it into what they do in their own programmatic work in pretty significant ways. Um, so that's some kind of change from within. But I think John is right that who we point to as the current ed tech leaders in higher ed, like himself, Scott McLeod, and, and others, um, they're the outliers, in, yeah. in, in my opinion. So, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll be... Well, let, so. Me, let me just um, throw in a point here. Um, last summer at, uh, at NEC, you know, Jeff Fudick, you were there. Um, I don't know if you remember, there was a, a conversation that began about... Well, there was one sort of pre-conference session about leadership, and there was a conversation that began about whether sitting school leaders actually need to know and understand uh, the technology itself or not. Um, and my claim was that I don't, I don't know that we need to make sure that technology leaders uh, or school leaders uh, understand and know the technology themselves. What we need is to uh, help them understand the importance 
of moving forward and the and to understand the shift and to then allow those who are going to move forward to move forward. Yeah. And I I would agree with that. Like uh, you know, I think first of all, I think we have to realize that the shift is not as much a, I, I personally, it's not so much a leadership shift as it is a curriculum shift. I mean, when we get right down to it, we're talking about changing the fundamentals of what runs a classroom, changing the fundamentals of what is actually taught in the classroom. And to me, that's more of a curricular shift than it is actually a leadership shift. Now, your leaders should be helping to facilitate that once that curriculum is in place and the school has decided. And, you know, maybe we're aiming too low at, at principals. Maybe this really needs to be coming from superintendents who say, this is the curriculum our school is going to have. And, you know, really a principal's job is to kind of enforce that and make sure that that curriculum is being taught in the way that it should be. And I think the other thing is, is if administrators can surround themselves and understand that, you know, I don't need to know, I don't need to know all the tools. I don't need to know what a blog or a wiki is. What I need to be able to do is go out and hire people that understand that stuff and surround yourself with people that are going to share within your staff, that are going to teach you as a leader. You don't have to know it all. You have to be able to be, you have to be able to go out and find people and surround yourself so that you know, you know, if this is a place you don't, you don't understand or it's, it's getting messy because you don't get it all, to go out and find people to surround yourself with. Shift can happen within the current system. You know, there's the old Albert Shanker quote about, you know, as we trudge into the 21st century, schools remain the last unreformed institution of the 19th century. Um, so, you know, there there have been changes within the current system, but it's those changes are 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 real slow, and it's like um, if 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 technology is the the square peg, um, are we trying to fit it into a round hole? Jeff, what do you think? Um, I wanted, to, if if we could, to kind of back up to your idea, uh, Jeff, which you suggested about, you know, the need perhaps for new leadership leader models or our understanding of like the mental models we have of school leadership, and connect that with, uh, with John's idea about do ed leaders uh, need to understand tools. Um, I'm in agreement with, with both of those. That No, I don't think they need to necessarily understand the tools. They're always going to change. I think what they need to understand is the practices and the power of those tools that um, have changed the, the landscape. The implications of that for education need to be clearly understood. Um, what you're suggesting, Jeff, is this, you know, I, what I've perceived to be is a really new understanding for a model of leadership. And, and John, perhaps, you know, you could speak to that a little bit, but it seems to me that in a K-12 setting, um, the school leader being the principal and assistant principals, I mean, that is the curriculum leader of, of the school. But what we're suggesting is, it seems to me, more of a shared leadership model where you bring people to the table who are ed tech leaders who do get it and who can provide uh, top level leadership support and guidance and visioning for a school. So, well, yeah, and in response to that, I a little while ago I posted a, a link in the in the chat session um, to a post I wrote 
let's see, almost a full year ago. And it's based on a, a chapter in a book that Chris Deedy, who's a, a wonderful professor at Harvard, wrote. He wrote it actually in a, in, a tech, in a book 15 years ago, a book about technology, and it's a chapter called Leadership Without Followers. Um, and he, he makes the claim that what school leaders need to be doing, um, he talks about sort of four attributes that we need in our, in our leaders. And the, the last of those attributes is what he says is discouraging followers. Mm. Uh, that, I th- that typically when we talk about leadership, we, we assume that that necessarily implies followership. Um, and Didi's claim is that um, we don't we don't want to think about leadership that way in our schools anymore. That uh, a, a good technology leader um, would inspire others to act, would trust their their folks to move forward, and not to just follow the the principal's lead and and wait for the principal to do something different. Um, and I think that's. Um, that's, I think, hard for, for a lot of people to, to grasp, uh, and I think uh, – so, so I think it's important to think about how leadership might happen uh, in the absence of followership. Hmm. That's a good point. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, you know, I think you're right. I think – I don't know. I, I think about – you know, I try to think about myself and – uh, I don't know. Like at my school, am I a leader at my school? Am I a leader because I really don't have any followers at my school? But I definitely am able to go out and motivate people. And is that what makes me a leader of change then? Is that people don't have to follow me. People don't have to know everything that I know. I don't have to make them follow me. But can I go out and inspire others to change? Is that what a leader? Is that what leadership is? I think that's a very important attribute of of leadership these days is is inspiration and Jeff Jeff Nugent and I are at a, an institution that's about to change its leadership. We're going to be getting a, a new president, and so you know I wonder to what extent this new president will understand the change, the shift that's happening in in higher education, uh, and will will want our institution to move mm-hmm. forward. Um, you know, Jeff Nugent can say more to this than I can, but it seems to me that VCU is um, sort of off the – or didn't get on the train that is distance learning um, enough. They were sort of at the back of the train at, at best. Um, but it's not that we can't get on the train, but I, I do think we need to, to get on that train. And that, and that I think, can't happen without leadership. And so I, I would hope a new president comes on and says – you know, we've got some work to do because otherwise we face becoming old-fashioned and obsolete. Yeah. And but, do you, but do I you get I, a chance? Do you get a chance to help in the hiring process, or is that something that you have to allow another layer of administrators or another layer of leaders actually hire? I mean, where does that? How, I mean, where's the accountability that that your new president is going to have these skills? Like, I think about the exact same thing. We hired a new principal here at Bangkok, a new high school principal, and I'm asking the question: Who was in the interview committee to make sure that these concerns were concerns that were being questioned of the candidates, and not just concerns of 
How many years overseas do you have? Do you understand what good curriculum looks like? Do you understand how you know what a high school runs and how's? But is somebody asking these questions in the actual hiring process of our leaders? Yeah, Jeff Nugent, do you want to? I mean, there there are public I mean, I, or open sessions for us to give our input, but you know, yeah, I know. And, and, and it's a it's a it's a slightly different animal here as well in that you know as an organization as an institution you know VCU is a small city um, and I think increasingly in higher education for better or for worse uh, you have school presidents who are viewed I think not as much as uh, educational visionaries perhaps but more as like CIOs of large companies. Um, and that you have, uh, you know, other school-level uh, leadership uh, at the provost level, perhaps, that is seen as the, as the key academic leader of the, of the institution. So, I, I mean, I guess I have questions about the extent to which a, an entity as big as VCU ultimately gets impacted by... Um, a president. I, I, I'm I'm not sure, but I would agree with 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 John that input of, about that here has been in the form of like open town hall meetings. There's a committee that's a search committee made up of the board of visitors. Those are the folks that are out there uh, making the decision of, about the president. Do those questions ultimately come on the table? Uh, I I mean, John, did you go to any of the town halls? I did not. And I, you know, I wasn't able to attend uh, any of them either. So, I mean, I don't know if the question got put on the table or not. Yeah, um, yeah and I, you know, I think um, I, I agree that for the most part, a, a president, particularly at the university level, is not a, the instructional leader. But at the same time, if we got a new president who came on board and said, uh, we need to really do some serious work uh, to advance our institution by way of technology, that would that would send a pretty strong message to the community and especially to the provost to say, you know, commit your resources that way. So I, I think the leader's I vision uh, could yeah. be very important. So how does this filter down to K-12 education then? Uh, should we be, well, you know, you're kind of talking about you know, the president's kind of the overarching, but how much do they really affect what, what's happening? You know, in a K-12 session, do we really need a superintendent that understands this? Because that is where decisions are being made. Do we focus on principles? Do we have to first, I mean, do we sidestep both of those and go to the school board and really focus on getting the school board to put the pressure on the system to change? I mean, yeah, it's, I, it's I don't where, think there's the leverage point. Right, right, exactly, and and I think that I think trying to understand that, and I don't know, I think it's different for every school, and you know, it, trying to figure out where where do you spend your mm-hmm. time and your resources in that change. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it's different in every school. It's different, and we have. Um, I came from New York, uh, particularly Long Island on New York, where just on Long Island we had 125 separate school districts, mm-hmm. and that's just Long Island. Um, now I'm in Virginia where we have – oh, in, in New York, the, you know, so the average school district was about 2,000 kids in a district. And so there were, there were 125 superintendents on Long Island. Wow. Well, now I'm in, now I'm in Virginia, uh, it's particularly in the central Virginia area where we have 30,000 student school districts. Um, and so the, the gov- how the district is governed is very different and it 
relates to how how change happens. Um, that you know, so my focus has mostly been at the at the school level, at the principal level, and, and what we can do with with sitting school principals around these issues. And my focus has been there because my research and other research shows that the the vast majority of the variance in technology integration is within schools, not between schools. Mm. And I'm, I'm sure you, you know, that's your experience right. as well, is that within any given school, there's a huge range of what folks are, are doing. So, you know, to, to create change, we may need, we, my contention has been that we may need to start at the, at the building level. Now, that being said, uh, we're also situated... Um, just south of a school division called Henrico, uh, Henrico County, uh, that was the very first large-scale district-wide laptop district. Uh, they had, um, and I wasn't here for it, so I followed it from a distance, but now I'm here. Um, they had a visionary superintendent who just decided, we're going to purchase 30,000 iBooks um, and, and give them out to all of our grade 6 through 12 students. Um, and no, no pilot test, no thinking through it in any real comprehensive way. It was here we go, yeah. uh, and that was you know it was, it was politically messy as as best I understood it from a distance. And now I'm I'm learning a lot locally, but but I thought that was pretty visionary, and it was you know it it wasn't. A, a superintendent making the claim, well, let's pilot it and see if we can get some teachers to do some interesting things, or let's see if the research says that this improves student achievement. It was a superintendent who said, we need to uh, prepare our kids to be productive citizens in the 21st century, and this is the way we're going to do it. Um, so, I, you know, that, that I think inspires me. The more I get to learn about the superintendent from folks who knew him, sort of inspires me to think that uh, we maybe we can make change at a, at a larger level than just a, a one building at a time. Right, and then you know, on and then you have Maine, where the governor comes out sure. and says yep. every middle school kid's going to get a laptop. Period. Figure it out. And it was the same thing. You know, no pilot program. Yep. No. You know, we're going to pilot this. We're going to, you know, work on the curriculum first. And I think that's part of it. You know, I think schools sometimes try too hard and aren't and don't allow themselves to understand that it's okay to be messy and it's okay not to have all the answers before you do something. If you truly believe in your heart that this is the way that we need to go and these are the skills kids need to have, then do it and we can figure it out later, you know. And I don't know. I've played, I mean, and that's kind of how I approach the classroom. Like, there'll be times when, I'm in a project right now where a teacher came to me and said, okay, here's what I want to do. What do you think can be done? And I was like, wow, this is an awesome project. And I think what we need is a wiki. And I've never used the wiki inside Moodle. I hear it's not very good, but I've never used it. We're trying to launch Moodle here at our school. Whether I believe that's right or wrong is beside the point, but that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> and so I said, I, I, you know, I, I, I basically said, I said, look, I've never done this before. If you're willing to take a huge risk with me, this might completely fail or it could be really cool, or it could be anywhere in between. And it's going to be frustrating, and it's going to be messy, and we might have to recreate it 10 times. But at the end, we're going to learn something. As educators, we're going to learn how this affected student learning, and is it something that I want to repeat with the other 72 educators that are under my support umbrella in the elementary school. But if you don't have a teacher that's willing to do that, 
you know, if you don't have a superintendent that just says, I think okay, that's a good gonna, approach, you know, we're going to um, give you laptops and here you, you go. know, to go back to the idea that, uh, you know, John raised about building level that it grows kind of, um, organically. We talked about leverage points and how to, where's the best one? Well, new models of leadership. I think there's a, a, a lot of different leverage points and that it does happen, uh, at the at the school level, at the building level, and models of leadership, I think, Jeff, to capture your classroom example and take it up a level to um, change at the, at, at the school level that, that we're talking about here, um, I think we need a way to tell those stories in, in, a, in a broader, more open kind of way where uh, we're exploring new models of school leadership that grow in different ways at different schools and to make those known. And I think that that's beginning to happen, but it's not happening, um, you know, on a very broad scale. Um, I, for an example, you know, uh, you guys at, at USB and the work that, uh, you know, you're doing there with the school change and the kind of models that you're developing, uh, I think that that's an interesting story of an experiment in school leadership that you're telling. Um, I would say, where is the clearinghouse for similar kinds of stories? Where where is that? And would that be of value to others who are trying to change? Uh, where are the connections among the different stories that say, here are new and emerging leadership models. Let's take a look at them. What worked, what didn't. Do you know where that, what, what do you think of that? I think that's great. And I, I don't know where you can find that. And I mean, that's always, that's been my approach. You know, my approach is to find that, yeah. one, or, that one or two teacher, you know, those, those teachers that are, that are saying, hey, come to my classroom and let's try something. I've got an idea and I'm willing for it to try and right now my my issue is is trying to get a teacher to that point because teachers are so focused on you know standards and benchmarks and trying to teach this content because we have to meet that test or we have to do this by such and such a date that trying to find a teacher that i can come in and say hey let's take five hours over the next two weeks and we're going to do this and it might completely fail but you need to understand that we're going to be doing some basically research to find out is this something that will work is this program worth pursuing and it's trying to get it's trying to find teachers that are even willing to kind of head outside of that box and you know and i think it comes back to a lot of what you're saying with the administrators at your level and what we're seeing with teachers and what it comes down to kids is I've been in 10th and 11th grade classrooms where I'll be teaching kids and trying to be have them come to their own conclusions or try to get them to think about something. And I've literally I literally had a, ten, a 10th grader girl come up to me and say, Mr. Yu, seriously, don't try to make us think. Just tell us what we need to know so we can ace the test. And I, I was just, you know, and, but that's what we do in school. We tell them what they need to know, and they like that. They're comfortable with that. And what I see, I think, and this is the thing that I'm on at the moment, is I see that same thing kind of as teachers. I don't want to think about changing something different. I don't want to have to think about actual teaching. Just tell me. Tell me where, tell me where the standards and benchmarks are that I have to hit, and let me go to my room and let me do what I do best, which is teach content. And so it's hard to come in there and say, hey, look, here's something different. Here's something. No, I don't want – don't make me think. Don't make me try to change 
the way this is. Uh, this is what I know. This is what I have to hit. I don't have to do that. I know that I can meet the standard and benchmark in this way. And so I see that throughout. Like, mm. it's interesting. Like, as I, as I reflect on that, like, here's a kid who's telling me, don't tell us to think. We don't want to explore. Just tell us what we need to know. And then I have teachers who say, don't, don't tell us to think. Don't tell us, you know, we know how to teach. Just leave us alone. And, and then you guys are getting administrators who are saying, you know, we can't, we need to focus on policies and procedures and, and what happens when this happens. And we don't have time to think about what that school would look like. You know, don't 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 make us think out there. Just tell us what we need to know so we don't get sued. Which is what well, I was told by an administrator this summer in an <laughs> in a class. Yeah, it, it's unfortunate that a lot of leadership is about uh, avoiding lawsuits. It's covering asses. It's it's doing putting out fires. It's all that sort of stuff, um, which leads me to and, and your sort of anecdote reminded me of, of that. Um, I had a, a doctoral student who did a dissertation, and her she did case studies of three uh, school principals or principals of technologically innovative schools. Um, one of which is uh, Chris Lehman, who we all know and love, you know, think the world of. Um, but but across the, those three school leaders, sort of the main finding that emerged is that first and foremost, they see themselves as learners, Absolutely. and so I think. Um, Myself and, and others who are in the business of preparing school leaders, I think our primary hour shift has to be towards moving folks who want to be in the business of school leadership towards thinking of themselves as learners. Um, and not just learning the tools necessarily, but, but thinking and learning about the, the business of schooling and the nature of, of learning and, and how that's all changing. And if they can start to get in the mode of, of learning about that stuff, I think they can start to learn about the, the details of what has to happen. Yeah, no, I agree. And I'm, we're going to wrap this up because I, uh, I know you have a child that might be waking up soon, and, and David's, already, <laughs> <He is> <laughs> David's already left us because he's dead tired. He just got back from Singapore today, and so once his, dro- his Skype call dropped, he said, don't worry about bringing me back. I'm going to go spend some time with the family and go to bed. So that's fine. But So as we wrap up here, I think uh, David asked that we usually end every episode with either a blog, a book, something, something for people to read, to take away. Uh, do you have any recommendations of something you've been reading lately or, or a, a blog post that you've found interesting? I see that someone – I don't know if it was one of you – dropped uh, leadertalk.org. Uh, yeah, yeah, I put that out there. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about that, Jeff, and why – and, I, well, totally and, and I think that's a fantastic link that everybody should follow. That's something that I've been uh, looking at a little bit lately. John actually probably could speak to it uh, better than I have. But I think that for me it becomes an example of being able to uh, – it's a group blog for school leaders. Um, and it, I think it provides one of those community-based opportunities for leaders to tell stories about change through um, – that open and shared space that's a blog. I, I think that it's a, um, a valuable indicator of, of change that I think can inspire people. So I, I think yeah, Leader this is, 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 is a cool pick. Yeah, yeah and uh, that was, it was started by Scott McLeod, and um, it was, the model was, that, you know, the, the, 
fashion brand FUBU, which is For You, By You. Well, this is a blog that's for school leaders by school leaders. So uh, it's a bunch of uh, really forward-thinking school leaders, folks in various positions around school leadership, who are uh, writing about these issues. And and I think the blog, well, there was some talk about moving it over to to Education Week and becoming one of the the Education Week blogs. And I don't know if that has happened yet, Um, but it's, it's getting a lot of attention. Yeah, it's a fantastic one. Do you have a pick or something you want to mention, John? Uh, well, I posted the, the the link within my own blog to the, the post about leadership uh, without followers. Um, I w- you know for those who are listening or will listen in the future that don't know about Chris Lehman and his school, um, he blogs at practicaltheory.org. Um, and you know we all point to him as kind of the lighthouse of what a school leader can and should be. Um, and if we could if we could clone people. Uh, I think we ought to figure out how we can clone Chris Lehman, but um, we're not there yet, I guess. <laughs> so his 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 blog is worth checking out for sure. Yeah, and I was going to try to find it. It's in my reader here. Oh, there it is. I'll throw that link in there. And then the last one I was going to do, let me grab this link real quick because I have a hard time doing two things at once. Um, so there's Chris Lehman's. And again, yeah, if if the thing we need to do with Chris is if we ever do find a way to clone him, we have to clone his energy as well. Because that guy Absolutely. is that guy is freaking insane. I mean, I've never seen a guy that he's just nuts. I tell you, he's fantastic. I love him. Um, so the link that I dropped in, and, and Andy Torres has been on on the show a couple times, but he's had a couple great posts lately. And the one that I, I threw in there is called "Technology Tools for Classrooms: Building a Community of Learners, Part 2. And and it's been really interesting to watch Andy. He's a good friend of mine, and he's also the deputy superintendent of Shanghai American School. And he's, you know, when you talk about a leader that's also a learner, I mean, this guy is is trying to learn it all and is very much into trying to understand what does this all mean as, as Shanghai American School heads to a one-to-one program probably in a year. So it, it's, it's a good post. Uh, I found it interesting. You can read part one right before it if, you, if you'd like. Uh, but he he's really starting to focus in on from a leadership perspective. What does this all mean, and and how do you, you know, how do you shift that school, and what does it mean to hire? And right now, internationally, we're getting ready for the recruiting season, so it, it'll be interesting to see kind of to watch him as he now heads out to recruit teachers for his school. What he's going to be looking for in teachers? What are the questions he's going to be asking in interviews? And that's the part that's that I'm interested in is how has over these last. These last two years, and this year specifically, he's really started to focus in on, on his beliefs and what he believes needs to happen. And so now I want to see how that transfers into his hiring practices and what are the kind of people he's trying to bring on board at, at his school. So I just wanted to throw that out there. And, and if I can just sort of plug, you know, why this is all important, uh, let me just have somebody say hello. Can you say hello? Say hi. Hello. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's all about those little ones, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And what, and what was the book? What was the book that you mentioned earlier? Because I forget the name. Uh, of the it. Chris, the Chris Didi book. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to Disrupt, find that. It was actually class, in, a, in a. Right. Oh yeah, disrupting class by uh, oh, just, Clayton Christensen and Jim Horn. I've also let me just my final plug. I put a uh, the URL for schooltechleadership.org. Um, that's Scott McLeod's um, group uh, at. At Iowa State now, he's got a, a, a center for school leaders and technology, and they've got a whole curriculum. And so they are they are actively working with school leaders. And uh, I'm sort of a 
a partner in that project. But folks, check out what Scott's doing at schooltechleadership.org. Excellent. Thanks so much. That's cool. All right. Well, I hear the little one in the background, which means you're probably approaching something like 8 a.m. there in uh, Virginia. getting there. No, but I appreciate you guys joining us tonight. Uh, As always, John, Jeff, it's great to talk to you. And we could probably talk about this forever. And maybe we will. Maybe we'll have you back in the future and we can continue the conversation. So, All right. Thanks again. so much for having us, Jeff. Right, Appreciate Thanks for it. having us. Yeah, no worries. Have a good right. have a good day, and we'll see. Uh, we'll talk you to you. We'll see you online. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, so that's going to conclude Shifting Our Schools podcast, episode 17. Uh, hopefully, you've enjoyed this. And remember, as you continue to work in your schools, wherever you are around the world, it's time to uh, shift those schools. So, Jeff, what's what do you advise people who uh, want to come into Thailand around Christmas time? Hey, come on! It's a great place to be. You know, it's uh, it was really interesting because being here, we had more people outside of the country tell us what was going on or what was being broadcast outside than ever than anything that was being broadcast inside. And it was really interesting because we never... I mean, the protests were actually going for three and a half months. And never once did it disrupt the daily lives of the majority of people in Bangkok. Like, we actually went out one weekend looking for the protesters and couldn't find them. <laughs> like, they were very much about not wanting... When it started three and a half months ago, they were very much about not wanting to disrupt the flow of the country, which was really interesting. So like they would march at nighttime. So at midnight, there was these marches downtown. Well, of course there's nobody out at midnight. They didn't stop any traffic. And so they were just, they were easy to ignore. And then, you know, they got to the point where they broke into the, they basically broke into the, the lawn of the parliament building or whatever. And they just sat there. They didn't go inside. They didn't do anything. They just sat there. And so it just kind of kept like they would do something and it, you know, parliament or the prime minister, nobody would react so it kept getting escalated. But the interesting thing is, when they took over the airports, it, that was just kind of it. It was kind of like, oh, well, they took over the airports. And daily life never changed. We never stopped school. We never stopped going downtown. We never stopped doing anything outside of our normal lives other than this weekend is a three-day weekend. It's the King's birthday tomorrow, so we have a three-day weekend. And basically nobody has flights because they're trying to get those people that were stranded here. They're getting out. And right now it's only Thai Airways and Bangkok Air, the two local airlines that are flying in and out of the airport. But here's the most crazy thing to me, is find me another country where protesters could take over the airport and and when they decide to leave, you could reopen the airport in two days because they touched nothing. They didn't touch any of the duty-free. They made sure they mopped on the way out. Everything was perfectly pristine. They didn't destroy or manhandle anything within the building. And so literally flights resumed last night at midnight was the first flight out. And they've been, I mean, we've heard airplanes all day because we're right next to the, the Dong Muang uh, airports right out here by the school. And there's been cargo flights going in and out all day. But it's like, I mean, that by itself, A, not very many other countries would allow somebody just to take over the airport. But B, that they just, it was untouched. And wow. people that were stranded in the airport said, they were so nice. Like they, you know, friends were bringing or family were bringing the protesters food and they were sharing their food with the protesters. And, 
or with the people that were stranded and the people that were stranded, the protesters made sure they all got on buses and they all got out of the airport. Like they said, they were just very well taken care of. There's a couple people, of course, that I think have freaked out about the whole thing. But we've met a couple protesters that said, oh, gee, I'm stuck in Bangkok for another week, stuck at a five star hotel. Man, (laughs) this is a rough life, you know. So it was really interesting because it. That's a really good point, though. Yeah. I mean, it didn't affect us a daily life or whatever. The the only mm-hmm. we had one thing two days ago. They did. There's an administration building a uh, governmental building out about mm, probably about two miles from school, and they protested there one day. And we all got a text message from school saying the protesters are at the building. And then about two hours later, we got the protesters are left. The road is open, and all of that was during the school day. So by the time the kids went home, the roads were open, the protesters were gone, and and nothing was disrupted. So it was just really it is it's it was really interesting the way the whole thing worked. You know, it was, it was, yeah, it was really interesting. Just a cultural view of, you know, Oh, here, we'll give you back your airport now. And it's in pristine, you know, condition Like they didn't even, they didn't even take the alcohol out of duty free. I mean, come on, that by itself would have been worth. Anyways, that's just me being an expat, but you know, (laughs) yeah. So that's, that's that, that's that deal. I think the thing that Americans, I don't think have a handle on is that, you know, uh, we think about a protest and, you know, you only need to look as far as Katrina to get a sense of what we envision happening at, a, at an airport in Bangkok, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, no problem. It's just, it's been really weird because people have, you know, people from outside have said, oh, I'm watching this on the news or I'm watching that on the news. And we're like, well, we haven't heard anything. There were, I think, over the three and a half months there were three or four grenades and that was the most damage basically that was done. So, I mean, there were a couple of people, you know, there were some times when they got a little bit violent, but, um, the police were never given guns to even defend themselves. And I don't know, it was just really weird. It's very much Thai culture. Don't make anybody upset. Everything's always happy and good type thing. It was really interesting. <laughs> 